Please grab a copy of God's Word. Open it up to John 12. We're going to have a whole sermon on God's Word next week as the closing summary uh, part of John chapter 1 is all about the Word. You simply cannot and will not get out of this time what you could and should without God's Word open up in front of you. I'm not all that great of a preacher. My only hope is to point you and direct you to God's Word, which is literally life. People often use the word literally wrongly. I'm not using it wrongly there. The Word is literally life. So you need that open up in front of you. We began the book of Deuteronomy on Thursday. Come this week. We're just getting started with a new study. But it was Jesus' favorite book. And we looked at Matthew 4. Three times Jesus is tempted. Three times He rebuffs Satan and resists temptation. All by quoting Deuteronomy. The most famous of which, Matthew 4.4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of of God. John 6:63 The words that I have spoken to you are life. So please come next week as we consider a word about the word. But today in John 12 we're going to look and listen to verses 34 through 43 and in that word we are going to again find the word glory. The choir just sang for you about God's glory. We're about to read about it. And it's it's that word glory that it is the key to unlocking this most difficult of texts and understanding this most tragic of texts. Remember, we're coming to the end of the first part of John. Basically, the book breaks down into two halves. Chapters 1 through 12, often called the book of signs. You'll see that word there in verse 37. He had done many signs before them. You won't see that word again until the very end when John summarizes the book and and what he is writing about. No more signs. We are leaving the book of signs and we are transitioning to the second half of the book, chapters 13 through 21, often referred to as the book of glory. And John is helping us to get there. John is seeding the ground like a good writer. He's leading us and preparing us. We've had glory in verse 23. We've had that word three times in verse 28. We have it again in verse 41. We have it twice more in verse 43. Glory, glory, glory. So more glory, which is good because we need more glory. Last week we took our cue from 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you're going to do this afternoon, do all to the glory of God. Looking back, how did that go for you last week? We just heard a long term, do all to the glory of God. How'd that go? If you're anything like me, your results were somewhat mixed, sometimes miserable, I preached an almost hour-long sermon on doing all to the glory of God after spending about 25 hours studying the glory of God. I concluded that sermon saying that the solution to sin and self is Christ's obsession, a desire for Christ's glory, eyes off you, eyes on Him, life not about you, life about Him, all to His glory. But then almost immediately, walking down these steps, 
going out to the back, the, the thought assault begins, right? How, how'd that sermon go? What'd they think of that sermon? Translation of, of me. Did, they, did that glorify me? Why did that person look so angry? Why did that person sleep so long, right? You start to rehearse and, and wonder about these things. Just a few minutes later, I'm in a prayer meeting wrestling with the competing desire to pray for the Lord and to pray to and for His glory with the desire to pray for the other people there and to pray to and for my glory in the presence of those people. Then I went directly into an education meeting struggling with the desire to demonstrate my glory and my teaching competence and brilliance. Then straight to a pastoral situation where the desire to show my glory and my competence competes with the desire to do the other person good. And all that was just before 4 o'clock on Sunday. Maybe it's just me. I have no problem confessing myself as the chief of sinners right there alongside Paul. I have no problem admitting that many of you are probably significantly farther along than I am. But does any of that resonate with you? Do all to the glory of God and then... Life, reality, then we walk out these doors. How'd it go? And how can we sit and listen to an hour-long sermon? How can we, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, how can that verse be so obnoxiously clear? And yet we still so struggle to not even just do all to the glory of God, but to sometimes do anything to the glory of God. I think a major part of the answer is found in our text this morning, as this is a text that is about unbelief. Many of us do not want to believe what Jesus says here about unbelief, but this is really, really important. Plus, he's Jesus. doesn't matter what we want to believe. It only matters what he says. A disciple believes what Jesus says. So let's consider this, for this is a theology of unbelief, but listen, if I want you to pay attention. This is not just a theology of a final damning unbelief. We, we will consider that, and we must consider that soberly and seriously, but this is also an opportunity for us to consider that, that lingering unbelief that still plagues so many of us as believers. Right? I believe, help my unbelief. Right? Well, we're given that prayer in Scripture for a reason. So let's see if this word can help us. I have one big idea, and then two very basic and obvious applications. We, we need basic and obvious. Point number one, we need to start again with the sovereignty and glory of Christ. That's what was just sung for us. All hail the power of Jesus' name. He is the sovereign and glorious Christ. That's really what this text is about. The rest flows and results naturally from this. If this, then this. If we can establish his sovereignty and his glory, then the next two follow. Point number two, be motivated, see the glory of Christ, and live. But then also point number three, be warned. Love the glory of man and die. See the glory of Christ and live. Love the glory of man and die. Let's read the text and let's get the word into our heads first. Uh, we're, our, our text is going to be verses 34 through 43. Let's back up and start reading at verse 27 just to, just to get into to where we are. John 12, I'm going to start reading in verse 27. I'll stop in verse 
43. Please pay attention. This is what the God of all glory wants to say to you today. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. If you would bow with me, let's, let's pause. Let's first go to the Lord. Let's ask him to help us in this time. Father, Thank you already for how gracious and good you have been to us already. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for congregation of worship and the wonderful gift of song and getting to proclaim who you are uh, together. Father, what a blessing that we get to hear and be reminded of your greatness and of your glory again and again and again. Oh, but Father, we forget again and again and again. So we need you to remind us. We need you to help us. Father, we need you to help us in this time. Help me to preach and proclaim clearly your word and your Christ. Help me to do it for your glory and not for my own. Father, help us to hear your word clearly. Help us to see Christ in it and to desire his glory and not our own. Father, we simply ask that you would truly Show us Christ. Give us a sight of his glory. A saving, sustaining, comforting, life-transforming sight of the glory of this Christ. Father, only you, by your spirit, through your word, can do that. And so we desperately ask for your help now. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Point number one, we start with the sovereignty and the glory of Christ. I told you to have your Bibles open. Well, where's that in the text? Well, it's everywhere. Context. We're picking up the story in verse 34. Last week, we considered verses 27 through 33, and we considered that under the heading of death and glory. Christ has come to this hour, the hour of his death, and in verse 28, he has said, Father, glorify your name. And then we heard the voice of the Father himself affirm and encourage the Son, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Remember, that's rare. We don't generally hear from, and see the Father. Hold on to that, because that's going to be important in a moment. But for now, what was so confusing to the crowd was Christ's connection of glory and death. He keeps talking about glory, and then he talks about his death. He says glory, and then in verse 32, he talks about being lifted up from the earth. Remember, it's a masterful play on words. To be high and lifted up is to be glorified, But we know that Jesus is also talking about the cross. He is talking about his being nailed naked to a cross on the ground and then literally being lifted up high into the air, hung on that cross. And just in case we're not tracking with him, what are you really saying there, Jesus? John clarifies for us in verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So glory, death. It's a strange combination. Verse 34. The crowd understands that he's talking about his death, but their minds cannot comprehend any sort of possible connection between who Jesus has been claiming to be and what he is now about to claim to do. Look at what they say. Here's the question. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? That's the eternally important question we're seeking to answer this morning. Who is this Son of Man? And they clearly don't know. But note that they do connect that title with the title Christ in verse 34. We thought that the Christ remains forever... How can you say that, not the Christ, how can you say that the Son of Man must die? So you see how they're equating the two terms. They move, they transition naturally from Christ to Son of Man. Christ means Messiah, the Anointed One, God's chosen Savior and Deliverer. And they know their law. Law there just refers to to the Old Testament, the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. They know their law. We should know the law. We should love the law, as we read in Psalm 19. But they know it, and they know that it says that the Christ remains forever. Where does it say that? It doesn't tell us exactly what passage they're thinking of. Maybe they're thinking of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. I will establish his throne, uh, his kingdom forever. Psalm 89, 36, his offspring, the Messiah, shall endure forever. So again, they know this. And so now they're they're listening to what Jesus is saying. They're they're reading it in light of the scripture. How, How can you, Jesus, claim to be the Christ and claim to be about to die? And then they swap their terms. Who is this son of man? It's a good question. Why do they call Jesus the son of man? 
Well, it's because they've been listening. Up in verse 23, Jesus has just said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it was actually this title, Son of Man, not Messiah. That was Jesus' preferred self-designation. Jesus avoided the term Messiah. He almost never uses it. Because there was so much baggage and confusion in the people's expectation of what this Messiah would be like. We saw this just a little bit ago in the so-called triumphal entry. They wanted a mighty military Messiah, a conquering king, come to vanquish the Romans and establish the kingdom. This is little different than what many of us do today when people try to co-opt Jesus and make him about whatever is the popular case of that day. You should always be concerned when the world's all about something and then you find uh, professing Christians be like, oh, look how Jesus is all about that thing, right? You should always be concerned when that's the case. No, Jesus does not bow to what we want him to be. He is not that kind of Messiah. And so to avoid confusion, he almost exclusively refers to himself as the Son of Man. Probably, it seems, because there was less baggage and confusion connected to this title. There was less possibility of being misunderstood. That's why when he talked about himself as the Son of Man, and then talked about his death, again, they're still confused. How can you say that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Daniel chapter 7, page 744. If you want to look at it. Daniel 7 tells us who this Son of Man is. Look at it. We hear the title Son of Man. And we understandably assume that this was a claim of of Christ's humanity. No, this was primarily a claim of Christ's divinity. He's not claiming to be a man. He is a man. But with this title, he's claiming to be God. So in Daniel 7, God has been giving Daniel visions. This one's Fascinating. Uh, Let's start in verse 9. Look at Daniel 7, verse 9. Here's the vision. This is a vision that God is giving, a revelation through these symbolic visions. In verse 9, we read this. As I, Daniel, looked, thrones were placed. Thrones. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was Fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Not quite a scene. Skip to verse 13. And behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom One that shall not be destroyed. That's the Son of Man. And that is not a man. (laughs) This is God. Note the throne. You are on your throne. There it is. Note the service 
the judgment, the dominion, the kingdom, the service, the dominion, the dominion, the kingdom, the glory in that text. This is what the Son of Man has. This is what Christ is claiming when he claims that title. This is who he is claiming to be. He has all dominion. He has a kingdom. The NIV translates that word as he has sovereign power. Everyone will serve him. Glory is given to him. God gives his glory to no other. Here's glory being given to the Son of Man. And so in claiming to be the Son of Man, Christ is claiming glory. Now back to John chapter 12. So he's established himself as the glorious Son of Man. Skip ahead to verse 41. We're going to come back for the context. Ignore all the controversial things for a moment. Those will make more sense in light of this, I hope. Look at verse 41. The previous verse, verse 40, is a quotation from another one of the great scenes in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6. We're coming to that. But listen to verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Him who? Who did he see? Whose glory? Well, Christ's. If you keep reading in verse 42, it makes it very clear that the he in 41 is Christ. It's talking about Jesus there. So what did that exactly did Isaiah see? Back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 6. Page 571, keeping you on your toes. Isaiah 61. No, sorry, Isaiah 6, verse 1 through verse 5. Sword drills. You remember sword drills? Get them in race. Try to get them as fast as you can. Who gets there first? And you hold it up in the air. Isaiah 6, verse 1. What a scene. Keep in mind what we just read in Daniel 7. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what Isaiah sees. And John says he saw Christ's glory and spoke of him. Remember John 1.28. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. That's the Son. That's Christ. He has made him known. And so remember, generally, in the Old Testament, when you are seeing and hearing God, you are seeing and hearing the Son. He is the Word. The one who reveals. He is the one who makes God known. And that's what makes the few times... When we actually hear the Father, as we just did in verse 28, and actually see Him in verse 7, as, in, in Daniel 7, sorry, as the Ancient of Days, that's what makes those unique and rare times so special. I don't, have, I don't claim to have this all figured out yet. 
But it's interesting. When we get to Revelation 1, remember Revelation is also John. And John describes Christ. He sees him, one, like a son of man. And you know what John then goes on to do? He takes all the imagery of the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7 and applies it to Christ, the Son of Man. And when he describes the Son, he describes Him like he describes the Son of Man in Daniel 7. It is really interesting what's going on here. The point is that there's great unity and intimacy and mystery when it comes to the Trinity and to the Godhead, as we should expect. This is the whole point that I'm seeking to establish with this section. It's, It's glory. God is not like us. He's so much bigger and beyond us. And what we do know about Him, we know about Him only through the Son. And so every one of those times that might be the Father speaking and showing Himself, even on those occasions, they're always in reference to the Son. And that's on purpose. For that's the very purpose of everything. Everything is meant to be in reference to the Son. And so when the Father speaks, it's about the Son. When we see the Father in Daniel 7, it's for the presentation of the Son. Everything is about the Son. Colossians chapter 1. I didn't write down the page number. You can find it. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, if you want to look at it. But if you ever want your brain to break... Or more precisely, if you ever want to be floored and humbled and rightly oriented, spend some time meditating on those verses. I've been reading about quantum physics. I don't understand quantum physics. I don't understand it. So I'm reading about it just because it's interesting. What's interesting is some of them will tell you that none of them understand quantum physics. Even the best of the minds don't understand what's actually going on. I don't get it, but I like to kind of read about it sometimes because it just kind of is, it's it's mind stretching. It's nothing compared to this. It's nothing compared to Colossians 1. Look at verse 16. There we see by Christ all things were created. All things created by Him. Again, what what a mind, what, what power, what a God. All things created. Then it goes on to tell us not only that, Not just by, catch all the prepositions. All things were created by Him. All things were created through Him. And, this is huge, for Him. And then it goes on to say that He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. I I don't really know what that means. But I know that it's glorious. And I know that it's big. And I know that's beyond my finite ability to comprehend. This is, this is His glory. Everything is about Him. For He made it all. And He made it all for Himself. And He Himself holds it all together. And this is why we are to do everything to the glory of God. Because everything already is to the glory of God. Right? He, he is that central. He is. That's how He reveals Himself. It's Jesus in the burning bush. He says, I am. He is being. He is existence. He is reality. He is glorious. That's what we saw in Isaiah 6 when we get the glimpse of Christ's glory. He is thrice holy, holy, holy. The one attribute of God that is cubed. The summary attribute. Bringing together all that He is as God. All that makes Him utterly separate and other 
perfectly good, brilliantly beautiful. He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is what everything is about. The glory of God. The showing and shining forth of who he is in his infinite greatness and goodness. And there in Isaiah 6, as we see him there seated on his throne, we're also being given a glimpse of his sovereignty. The all-glorious one must then also be the all-sovereign one. That's what we just sang about. And you know, if you had to pick, you can answer this in your own head. If you had to pick, like, what's the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. If you had to pick like one doctrine, what's the most foundational, core, important doctrine of the faith? What would you go with? You can make an argument that it's the Trinity. You can make an argument that it might be the Trinity, the identity of our God, three in one. Or I think you could make a case that the most important doctrine of our entire faith is the sovereignty of God. It's the sovereignty of God. Everything else flows from that. If he is this in Isaiah 6, everything else necessarily follows. If he's not, none of it matters. None of it makes sense. The sovereignty of God is foundational. In the course of my attempts to understand the book of Deuteronomy these last two weeks, I'm not there yet. I'm feeling overwhelmed by Deuteronomy. But as I was studying and just reading and reading and reading, I came across an old work back from the 30s by as far as I can tell, a scholar that we wouldn't classify as particularly conservative or evangelical. But, but he writes this. He says, the one fundamental statement in the theology of the Old Testament is this. I love claims like that. I love big, bold claims. The one fundamental statement in the whole of the theology of the Old Testament is this. God is the ruling Lord. God is the ruling Lord. That's Old Testament theology. Everything else flows from that. Everything else derives from that, leans on that. Everything else can only be understood in reference to that. God is the ruling Lord. In other words, God is sovereign. He's the Lord. And as the Lord, he has all the glory and all the sovereignty and everything exists in reference to him. And again, what Christ is doing again and again and again and doing in our text is he is saying, I am that. I am He. I am the all-glorious One. I am the Son of Man. I am Isaiah 6, the Lord on the throne with all sovereignty and glory. So is this your Christ? And is He this big? Do your life, does your life and your love for Him reflect the fact that He's this big? For if He is this, if he is sovereign and glorious in this way, then points two and three logically follow. Let's get to them. Point two, nice and simple. If he's that, see that. See the glory of Christ and live. I'm going to be brief here today because Jesus is going to say basically the same thing next week in verses 44 through 46. So we're going to come back to this as we consider belief and then unbelief a little bit more next week. Look back at the text. Verses 35 and 36 are the end of Jesus' public ministry. These are his last words to the crowds. The rest of his time is spent exclusively 
with the disciples. The rest of chapter 12, verses 37 through 43, are are John's summary explanation of the crowd's response to the Christ. And then it seems most likely that verses 44 through 50 are not some other interaction of Jesus with the crowd, but this is John's summary statement and explanation of Christ's ministry and teaching. And so this is the end here in 35 and 36. I want you to see both how gracious of an end it is, and how sobering and somber of an end it is. The crowd has said, who is this son of man? Christ doesn't entirely answer their question. Look at verse 35. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What a gracious word from this glorious Christ. He has received almost nothing but confusion and challenge and conflict from the crowd. The overwhelming response, as we're about to see, has been unbelief. And yet here, after all of that, at the very end of all of that, he is still graciously inviting them to him. Still inviting them to believe. Still inviting them to live. And he does so by returning again to the imagery that he's been using throughout the book. We've seen that he's the Son of Man, the Sovereign God of all glory on his throne. And glory is the revelation. Remember, glory is the the showing forth, the shining of the gracious God. And so Jesus is also the light. For that's what light is. It's one of the very first things John reveals to us about Jesus. He's the Word. He's life. Verse 4, He is light in John chapter 1. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus makes this one of His seven great I Am statements of self-revelation. Who is this Son of Man? Chapter 8, verse 12. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Yeah, that, that light symbol, that image, it's, it's such a comforting, comprehensive image. We, we can't do it justice here. But it is, first of all, another claim to be God. For God is light. Literally, the, the first noun that God has ever recorded as speaking, Genesis 1-3, is light. First thing God says, let there be light. And there was. That's amazing. God who is light speaks, and it is. There was darkness, and then there was light, and then there was life. Light is life. God is life. In claiming to be light, Christ is claiming to be God, and in claiming to be life. Psalm 36, verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. That mean you can't even see light, you can't even see without his light. Everyone else is walking around in darkness, blind. You can't see without his light. Psalm 27 1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. We just prayed it. Whom shall I fear? No one, if he is with us. So, light gives life, 
But light also gives, obviously, revelation. Right? Light shines. Light shows. You can't see without it. Christ shines forth God. Christ shows God. You can't see God without Christ. There's a lot of people out there claiming to see God and to know God and to worship God apart from Christ. And according to this, they're not. They can't see Him. And we know that that God is also holy, holy, holy. He's perfect in purity. And light was also frequently a symbol of moral goodness. Light is goodness. Darkness is, is, is evil often in, in the Old Testament imagery. So there's so much just in light that we, we can't get into. Deity, life, revelation, goodness. All in that one word. Jesus can say so much with so little. Here's who I am. I am light. So listen, while you have me, while I'm here, while there is still time, walk in the light. Walk in my light. Up in verse 26, he has said, follow me. It's the same thing. How? Verse 36, he says, believe in the light. Verse 44, next week we'll see, believe in me. In other words, he is saying, just see me. See me for who I actually am in all my glory. We're often so unimpressed with Christ because we don't see him as he truly is. As this sovereign God of all glory. Son of man. As light. As God. He is saying, see me in my glory and you will live. Believe. We've got to move past belief as believing some stuff about Jesus. We've got to move past belief as an intellectual assent to some historical facts that then has no effect and no impact on our lives. It's just not belief. Jesus says, believe, walk, live this way. Borrowing the language from verse 41, he says, see my glory. And listen, relationships are transformative. This is what relationships do. This is part of their design. Relationship is the coming together in close communion of two different and distinct minds. And as those minds mingle and relate, they are molded by one another and they become more and more like one another. Our 13th wedding anniversary is next week. Praise God. Grace. You stuck with me for 13 years. That's amazing. You think I'm a mess now. You should have seen me 13, 14, 15, 16 years ago. I'm so glad there's not a single person in this room, apart from her, who knew me that many years ago. What happened? Well, the grace of God, of course. But that grace of God mediated to me through relationship. Right, through relationship with a far superior person, a person of great beauty and goodness. And relationship with goodness and beauty has a profound transformative effect on our lives. And listen, this isn't just a marriage thing. This is, this is how all intimate relationship is supposed to work. Especially intimate relationship in Christ is supposed to work. As, as we come together and as we relate to one another and we're around one another and we speak and we listen and we learn and challenge and encourage, it's supposed to change us and transform us 
An intimate, repeated encounter with the good, with the other, makes us better. More like that good, more like that other. And the point is, if that's the case for human relationships, how much more then? Does that have to be the case for relationship with the Christ of point one? With the one who is the sovereign God of all glory. With the one who is life. To believe in him is to see him for who he is. And to see him um, for, for who he is because he's so, so good and glorious is then necessarily to live. Such a confrontation and contact with life itself is to live. And to be transformed. As his love for you manifests itself in love for him and a vision of him, it transforms you to make, to make you more and more like him. The point is, you cannot have a mild interest in this Christ. You cannot know this Christ without being profoundly transformed by him, for he is light and life. I was using a very important John Owen quote for a while. I just haven't been able to get away from this quote. I gave it a rest because you get tired of me quoting old dead guys. Um, but we all need to read more old dead guys. Anyways, John Owen, in his very last book, one of the last things that one of the most brilliant minds that has ever lived wrote was this. He says, this is the universal remedy and cure, the only comfort for all our diseases. You know, another just huge claim. It sounds wonderful. You tell me. You tell anyone. You convince us that you have a universal remedy and cure and comfort for everything that ails us. I think vitamins don't work. They don't do anything. Science has proven it. I keep taking them. Eh, what, what, if it, what if it works? I don't know. It might work. Okay, there's just no evidence that they actually really work. But I take it because it might. I like vitamins. They're yummy. Side note. What's the, what's the point? We're stupid about things that, hey, this might benefit us. This might be good, so I'm going to try this thing and pursue it. This might help and heal. Here we have the claim for universal remedy and cure. Wouldn't we do whatever it takes to get that thing? You know what it is? You know what it is. Owen says, it is a sight of the glory of Christ. And then he goes on to argue in great detail that it is only in the sight and contemplation of the glory of Christ that you will find rest for your soul. And so it's quite simple. It really is. It's so simple. It's, it's, it's look and live. It's believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And we're we're going to circle back to this next week and talk about this more. But for now, if that's who he is, and if that's what he offers, and if that's what a sight of him and who he is does, well, what if you do not do that? What if you will not do that? What if you refuse to come to him and see him and submit to him as he is? Well, then, point number three. Turns out that you then love the glory of man, and you will die. John's gospel has a lot of hard and heavy verses. I've got one commentary that, that skips a couple passages. And it's conveniently some of the harder passages. I'm like, come on, man. You can't, just, you can't just skip the hard passages. Did you catch the hardest and heaviest verse in our passage? 
You think it's verses 38, 39, and 40. You think it's 39 and 40. You would be wrong if that's what you think. Because it's the second half of verse 36. Look at the second half of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. The end. That's the end. That's the end of Christ's public ministry to the crowd. If he is all that we have claimed that he is, all that he has claimed that he is, then this is judgment. This is the greatest of all judgments. The Lord of life, the God of glory, departing from man and hiding himself from man. And again, the hiding and the departing of the Lord who is life, the only possible result is death. This is the conclusion of Christ's public ministry. That is how he very soberly and seriously passes judgment on the crowd. Why? Why is that his ultimate and final response? It's because of verse 37. Look at verse 37. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Oh, apparently seeing is not believing. They saw and they still did not believe. He departs because of unbelief. Which again, we're trying to remind ourselves and learn that th this is the chief of sins. Whatever you think of as like, that's the worst one. This is the worst one. There's no greater evil than rejecting goodness himself. There is no greater darkness than rejecting light himself. There is nothing more deserving of death than rejecting life himself. You put it in those terms and you see who Christ is in our first point. Such unbelief is almost unbelievable. If he's this glorious, if he's this good, how, why such unbelief? It's surprising. It's shocking. Look at verse 38. John and Jesus are very much holding the people responsible for their blind, stubborn unbelief. They saw and they didn't believe. But we also then see that this is a fulfilling of God's word. And then uh, John goes on to quote Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the first verse of Isaiah 53. Remember, which is the great revelation of the work of God's servant, the Messiah. The clearest revelation that this glorious servant, he's called the arm of the Lord, right? Arms are supposed to be big and strong and powerful. Arms are strength and the ability to accomplish great works. He's the arm. And the passage begins with his greatness and his strength and the glory of his servant. And then it just shifts suddenly to the great suffering of that servant. And that's what was so surprising and so hard to believe. It's the same thing that we just saw in verse 34. How can you say that the Son of Man must suffer and die? These things don't go together. The very gospel that is the power of God for salvation is also a stumbling block. 1 Corinthians 1.18 It is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. That which is God's power to us. That which we most delight and rejoice in. That God's glory is revealed most clearly in the cross. In the death of His Son. In our place for the forgiveness of our sins. The world can't see it. The world can't believe it. 
And that's what verse 39 says quite clearly. Therefore, they could not believe. Again, we cannot believe that it says there, could not believe. But it's just there. It's just clear. This is one of those texts that's so clear that we should be concerned about those who go to great lengths to argue why what the text so clearly says doesn't actually mean what it so clearly says. These are the verses that come right after what we just read in Isaiah chapter 6. There's the vision of the glory. uh, Who will go for me? And Isaiah's like, here I am. I'm going to do it. It's this great missions verse. And then, boom, we see see what his mission is. It's, It's the words that we just read. And those words are quoted in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke and here in John and in Acts and in Romans. Same thing. Again and again and six times. They could not believe. But this, this is actually not all that controversial. Or it, it shouldn't be, at least. Paul says it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them. He says also in Romans 8, 7 and 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He gets just clear words. Not able, cannot. And remember, a disciple follows Jesus. A disciple believes what Jesus says and does what Jesus does. We're seeking here to believe what Jesus says. Says There are a lot of professing disciples who outright deny what Christ so clearly declares. That's a dangerous place to be. Faith is believing. Faith is submitting our will to his will and accepting what he says regardless of what we think of what he says. It's understanding that our understanding is infinitely inferior to the understanding of the all-knowing and all-wise God over all. Listen, that's why we started and spent so long with the sovereignty and the glory of God. The problem is our God, little g God, the God of our conception, is often so small. The biggest thing that we need is a bigger God. A better understanding of the bigness of our God. He is creator. We are creature. He is potter. We are clay. He is infinite. We are finite. He is not like us. He does not submit to us. He does not answer to us. He is the ruling Lord. This is simply what it means for him to be the sovereign God. Will, decision, arrangement, goals, plans, all those things are his. Our part is obedience, submission, listening, obeying. He has the right and the power and the authority to do what he wants and what he wills. And we could just stop there and leave it at that. And God would be right and just for he is God and we are not. But he doesn't leave it there. Remember, Isaiah saw his glory. But Isaiah didn't just see his glory in the vision of chapter 6, but he saw his glory in the revelation of chapter 53, where the God of all glory is revealed also in his great compassion and kindness in the sacrifice of his very own son for us in our place that we might live. Part two of the book begins in two weeks. The whole second half of the book and what, what's, what's the whole thing about? It's all about the cross. 
It's all about the glory of God revealed in the death of God's Son for us. And in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, spent entirely with his disciples, teaching his disciples, preparing final words to his disciples. Do you know what the main topic of conversation really is? Look at chapter 13, verse 1. This is so wonderful. This is how it opens the end. Notice how it closes the end for the crowd. Notice how it opens the end for the disciples. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You can sit in that. Camp, that, that, that's my only hope. He loved them to the end. And to all of those who are in Christ, he will love us to the end. He's not just the all-powerful, sovereign God, but the all-loving, compassionate God. Look at verse 34 of chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That God, the God of point one, all power and glory sustaining the very fabric of reality, just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. Yeah, so he is in control and he's good. He is sovereign and he is love. Here is his glory revealed in the beautiful conjunction of his excellencies. It's actually pretty simple. When we come to difficult passages like these and we struggle with them, we forget who he is and we forget who we are. That's it. It really boils down to that. We forget and minimize who he is as God and we forget and maximize who we are as man. We forget his sovereignty and we forget our sin. We forget that he is the infinitely sinned against and rejected one, the God of all glory, despised and treated as worthless, the source and sustenance of life and all that is good, entirely hated and declared bad by us. I'm so ridiculous. But God. He, he would be perfectly just to, verse 36, all of us, to depart and hide himself from all of us, and we die. But he doesn't. In his unimaginable grace, that whole mass of sinful man that had rejected him, he freely and graciously entered in and chose to save some, though he did not have to. And he did it entirely to his glory for our unimaginable good. None of us could have believed. That's the whole point. None of us could have believed. No one can believe apart from a gracious work of God's Spirit, giving us new hearts to love Him and eyes to see Him. Again, that's how bad our sin is. None of us could believe. Jesus has already prepared us for this verse back in 644. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is how bad sin is. None of us can see the clearest, most beautiful person. None of us can come to the most loving, inviting person. That's your sin. He's so clear and he's so good and we can't even, we can't even see and we can't even come. Praise God that he comes to us and he comes and gets us and he comes and gets us by becoming us and dying for us that we might live amazing grace. 
And so, yes, listen, if you see that and you hear that, you are in no more privileged of a place right now that you get to hear the gospel. Not me, but that you get to hear the gospel. But you're also in no more dangerous place right now. That if you keep hearing that gospel and keep rejecting that gospel, it, it, it hardens. It blinds. You reject that, what is so clear here in God's word, God will continue to blind eyes and hardened hearts. He is sovereign over belief and unbelief. We are responsible for our unbelief. Scripture clearly asserts both, even if we don't understand all of the fine details. But to persist in stubborn unbelief is the greatest danger in the world. He must judge sin. And so he must judge the chief of sins, which is unbelief. There will come a time when he departs and hides himself, and you cannot believe. And what we're going to see, we just don't have time for it. What we're going to see is it's ultimately going to be because you loved self more than you loved him. And you sought your glory before his. Your tiny insignificant glory. You're like, this sounds good compared to point one. And what we just saw. The glory that comes from man instead of the glory that comes from God. That'll be point. That'll be verse 43. But that, that's too important. I want to circle that back and bring that in. Christ is going to readdress what belief is. And I want to circle back and consider the belief of these Pharisees next week. But for now, chew on that question in the interim. What do you love? The glory that comes from man or the glory that comes from God? And this, for me at least, is a large part of the answer to our question in the beginning. How can we still so struggle to do all to the glory of the all-glorious God? Verse 41, Isaiah didn't struggle because he saw his glory. Isaiah 26.3 is Sharon's favorite verse. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Yet if that verse is true, which it is, if I find my mind not in perfect peace, it must then mean that my mind, instead of staying on him, has strayed from him. That means that the one thing I need is a mind stayed on Christ and a sight of Christ's glory. For it is a life-giving, transforming sight. And as we're hopefully going to see clearly next week, that sight comes through the word. And so, so, so your application this week, your application... It's, it's not just read the word. It's not. That's not it. It's so much more than that. It is, it is throw yourself at the word. It is pursue it as if it contained the most precious thing in the world because it does. It means to, to plead with the Lord in prayer to give you such a sight of Christ's glory that thrills and comforts your soul. And then it's look and listen and look and listen and don't stop because there's nothing more important than seeing and delighting in him. He is life itself. Spurgeon was saved under the words of look and live and he never forgot those words. I'll close with his words. We read another Spurgeon sermon this week. Look, listen to how he encourages us to look. I, this was very helpful to me this week. He said, Oh, brethren, when you are troubled, rest with us by looking to Calvary. And if the first glance does not quiet you, look and look and look and look again. For every grief will die where Jesus died. 
Church, look. Sometimes we look once and we're like, eh. And so then we move on to something else. Look again. And if you don't see it yet, if you haven't yet found rest for your troubled soul, look and look and never stop looking until you see. And no matter how long it takes and no matter how long you look, when you see by the grace of God, it will be eternally worth it. For he is infinitely good. The one true sight of his glory is worth an entire world of pleasure. Do we believe that? Then look and never Stop looking. Let us be unrelenting in our pursuit of the most precious thing, Jesus Christ, the sovereign God of glory. See his glory and live. Let's pray. Father, now we ask for you to do that very thing. Father, the the other things are already starting to creep into our vision the things that are ahead, the things that are to come, the things that await us this week, the things that we are tempted to love more than you, the glory that we are tempted to pursue apart from you. Father, crowd those things out with the sight of the glory of Christ. Father, help us to see him. Help us to see him for who he truly is in all his glory. Help us to submit to him as he truly is, as the ruling and reigning king of everything. The one about whom everything revolves. May our lives more and more revolve about him. Father, please show us Christ. Comfort us with Christ. Conform us to his image. May we more and more uh, love him as we look to him and become like him. Father, please help us now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.